the old pilot's plain tales, Holmes and the Battle of Britain. As September comes around, my mind often wanders not only to the number of birthdays that occur around this time, whatever were our parents up to at Christmas, but to the more important events that were occurring during these months in 1940. Mainland Europe had been entirely defeated by Nazi Germany's military and Britain faced total domination by the fascists and the horrors that they would bring. It would not be until the end of 1941, more than a year in the future, that the new world would come to the aid of the old, and in the meantime, Britain stood alone. On the 18th of June, Churchill stood in Parliament and gave a speech in which he stated that what General Wayland called the Battle of France was over, and that the Battle of Britain was about to begin. At the same time, Alfred Jodl, the Chief of Staff of the High Command of the Wehrmacht, issued a planning order stating that operations against England were to dislocate English imports, the armament industry, and the transport of troops to France. The plan was to blockade Britain by air from the French coast and by sea using U-boats and force a negotiated peace. The first priority was to eliminate the Royal Air Force and gain complete air supremacy. Once the Luftwaffe had control of the air and the UK economy had been weakened, an invasion would be the final strike. On the same day, the Luftwaffe's commander-in-chief, Hermann Goering, issued his operational directive to destroy the RAF, thus protecting German industry. By mid-August, Operation Sea Lion, the invasion of Britain, was in preparation as an alternative to a negotiated surrender with Churchill, but Herr Hitler was keen to avoid a costly invasion. The answer to his question was given by Churchill in an epic speech containing the words, We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Parliament lauded his speech and sentiments, and his secretary, Jock Coville, wrote in his diary, went down to the house to see the PM's statement on the evacuation of Dunkirk. It was a magnificent oration that obviously moved the house. MP Harold Nicholson wrote, This afternoon Winston made the finest speech that I have ever heard. Another MP wrote that Churchill was eloquent and oratorical and used magnificent English. The speech, with its later references to America joining the war, was obviously meant for consumption across the Atlantic, and the New York Times wrote, It took moral heroism to tell the story that Winston Churchill unfolded to the House of Commons yesterday. Its meaning will not be lost upon the British people or their enemies, 
or upon those in the New World who know that the Allies today are fighting their own battle against barbarism. There were many in the United States who didn't believe Britain had a chance, including the American ambassador in London, Joseph Kennedy. He favoured appeasement with the Nazis and argued against providing military and economic aid to the United Kingdom. In British government circles, Kennedy was widely disparaged as a defeatist. When the White House read his quotes, it became clear that Kennedy was completely out of step with Roosevelt's policies, and he was promptly recalled. But Kennedy wasn't the only one who thought that Britain had little chance. The Luftwaffe had advised Hitler that gaining air superiority over England would only take 14 to 28 days. Thus, the scene was set for the world's first major military campaign to be fought solely in the air. Officially, it started on the 10th of July 1940, and concluded at the end of October, but this overlaps the Blitz terror-bombing attacks on London and other major cities. German historians see the campaign running from July for more than a year, which only goes to illustrate what an effect this conflict must have had on the men and women of the Royal Air Force and Fleet Air Arm. In the main, the battle faced the Luftwaffe's Messerschmitt BF-109E and BF-110C against the RAF's poster child, the Spitfire Mark I and the Hurricane Mark I, which were twice as numerous as the Spitfire. The 109 could climb better and was 40 miles an hour faster in level flight than the Hurricane, although by mid-1940 all RAF fighter squadrons had converted to 100-octane fuel, which, at lower levels, gave them a 30-mile-an-hour increase when using emergency boost override. But the 109 always had an advantage. The RAF's aircraft were also armed with eight 303 Browning machine guns against the 20mm cannons of the 109s. The difference in hitting power was demonstrated by the Luftwaffe bombers who made it home with multiple bullet holes, in some cases more than 200. The disadvantage of the Messerschmitt was its manoeuvrability, and although its fuel-injected engine could better handle negative G than the Merlin, it had a larger turning radius. In general, though, as the renowned aviation author Alfred Price mentions, the differences between the Spitfire and the ME109 in performance and handling were only marginal, and in a combat they were almost always surmounted by tactical considerations of which side had seen the other first, which had the advantage of sun, altitude, numbers, pilot ability, tactical situation, tactical coordination, amount of fuel remaining, etc. Fighter command was never short of pilots per se, but by mid-August 1940, the problem of finding sufficient numbers of fully trained fighter pilots became acute. Aircraft production was running at 300 planes each week, but only 200 pilots could be trained in the same period. 
The RAF had lost 435 pilots during the Battle of France, with many more wounded and others were lost in Norway. Drawing from every source, on July 1st, 1940, the British could only muster some 1,103 fighter pilots, and the new pilots, who often had little flight training and no gunnery training, suffered high casualty rates, exacerbating the problem. In comparison, the Luftwaffe were able to draw on 1,450 experienced fighter pilots, many of whom had combat experience from the Civil War in Spain. To bolster their numbers, about 20% of the RAF's pilots came from other countries, and they fought with great distinction, as I have mentioned in previous tales. The scene was set for a battle never before experienced by any Air Force, but despite their problems, the RAF had some distinct advantages. The Luftwaffe didn't appreciate the importance of the chain home radar system that gave the RAF advanced warning of attacks and allowed squadrons to get airborne with height and speed advantage to meet oncoming raids. Despite a few attacks, which on occasions put sections out of action, the Germans decided that the open steel towers were too hard to knock down and generally left them alone. In addition, the German fighters were close to the limit of their range and had little time to spend in the combat area before red low fuel lights forced them to disengage and head for home. In the middle of this remarkable conflict was one Raymond Towers Holmes. Artie, as he was known, a nickname made from his initials, R and T, was a pretty typical Battle of Britain pilot. He'd grown up in Cheshire, gone to an unremarkable grammar school, and then worked as a crime journalist with the Birkenhead Advertiser. Unlike the members of the Royal Auxiliary Air Force, who were considered an elite corps of civilians who served their country in their spare time and often came from the wealthiest classes, Artie joined the Royal Air Force Volunteer Reserve. Indeed, he was only the 55th man to do so. He trained to fly at Breswick in Scotland, and then, when war broke out, he ended up with number 5 Flying Training School at Sealand, where in December 1939 he was court-martialed and severely reprimanded for low flying. His reprimand didn't dampen his flying spirit, though, and when his squadron, number 504, was moved from Wick to Hendon in London, an airfield which is now home to the RAF Museum, he found himself in the middle of the Battle of Britain. A couple of months later, on the 15th of September, he scrambled his hurricane, Tango Mike Bravo, on yet another operational sortie to tackle more incoming raids of German bombers escorted by fighters. The day is now known as Battle of Britain Day and it was an all-out attack on London that forced the RAF to launch every fighter they could to defend the country. They had nothing left in reserve. To German intelligence, it seemed as if the RAF might be on the verge of collapse, 
but the response the Luftwaffe received that day demonstrated the reverse. Within a few days, the invasion of England had been delayed, and the tactic of destroying the RAF on the ground changed to the blitz bombing of cities instead. Artie was airborne and in the thick of the fighting when he saw a formation of three Dornier DO-17s heading for central London. In his own words, Artie tells the story. I made my attack on this bomber and he spurted out a lot of oil, just a great stream over my aeroplane blotting out my windscreen. I couldn't see a damn thing. Then, as the windscreen cleared, I suddenly found myself going straight into his tail, so I stuck my stick forward and went under him, practically grazing my head on his belly. Sergeant Holmes had fallen foul of a German secret weapon, which had only just been fitted to a few aircraft as a trial, a rearward-facing flamethrower. As early as the end of 1939, Lieutenant Stahl, a technical officer at KG-51 made the proposal to repel attacking fighters with flamethrowers built into the rear of the bombers and long-range reconnaissance aircraft. The attacking hunter was supposed to push into the ejected soot and oil cloud so that his cabin windows suddenly became blind. Artie continues... I got to the stern of the aeroplane and was shooting at him, when suddenly something white came out of the aircraft. I thought that a part of his wing had come away, but in actual fact it turned out to be a man with a parachute coming out. I was travelling at 250 miles an hour, it all happened so quickly, but before I knew what had happened, this bloody parachute was draped over my starboard wing. There was this poor devil on his parachute hanging straight out behind me and my aeroplane was being dragged. All I could do was swing the aeroplane left and right to try and get rid of this man. Fortunately, his parachute slid off my wing and down he went and I thought, thank heavens for that. It was then that Ray Holmes saw the third bomber heading directly for Buckingham Palace. He positioned himself for a head-on attack, but then, to his horror, he found that he was out of ammunition. As I fired, he said, my ammunition gave out. I thought, hell, he's got away now. And there he was, coming straight along, and his tail looked very fragile and very inviting. So I thought, I'd just take the tip off his tail. So I went straight at it, along him and hit his port fin with my port wing. I thought, that will just take his fin off and he'll never get home without the tail fin. I didn't allow for the fact that the tail fin was actually part of the main fuselage. Although I didn't know it at the time, I found out later that I'd knocked off the whole back end of his aircraft, including the twin tails. Jimmy Early was playing football at the corner of Ebury Bridge Road near Victoria Station. Suddenly they heard gunfire, early recalled. We ran up to Ebury Bridge, and I can remember the hurricane seemed to go underneath the Dornier, which split, and all of a sudden, wallop, it came down in no time. Obviously the hurricane pilot had no care for his own safety. He couldn't have done. He just hit it, and the back of it came off. 
Holmes' own plane began to dive to the left and was no longer responding to the controls. As the hurricane went into a vertical dive, Holmes bailed out. When he climbed out, the airstream caught him and smacked him down onto the roof of the hurricane. Then, as he was thrown backwards, his shoulder hit his own tail fin, and when he finally managed to pull his ripcord, the jolt shook off his flying boots. I was right over the railway lines, running into Victoria Station. I thought, hell, I'm going to get electrocuted now after all this. Then I was swinging towards a row of houses. I hit the roof of one and couldn't get any grip on the slates in my stocking feet. I slithered down the roof until I got to the gutter and thought, now I'm going to break my back and kill myself, falling off a three-storey house. But as I fell, there was a sudden jerk and I stopped, with just my toes on the ground. My canopy had snagged over an up-pipe running past the gutter, and that had stopped me. But both my feet were inside a dustbin. The lib was on the ground. The bin had obviously just been emptied. My two toes touched the bottom of the bin, but my heels were still off the ground. Holmes was fated by the press as a war hero for the saving of Buckingham Palace although it's not now believed to have been a specific target. As the RAF did not practice ramming as an air combat tactic, this was considered an act of selfless courage. This event became one of the defining moments of the Battle of Britain and elicited a congratulatory note to the RAF from Queen Wilhelmina of the Netherlands who had witnessed the event. Artie recovered and survived the war despite fighting on the northern front with the Russians near Murmansk and then flying photo reconnaissance in PR Spitfires. After the war, he was made a King's Messenger, personally delivering correspondence to the Prime Minister Winston Churchill before returning to a career in journalism. Sixty-five years later, His aircraft was discovered and excavated from the streets of London. National Geographic made a documentary about it, The Search for the Lost Fighter Plane. Ray Holmes passed away in 2005 at the age of 90. If you enjoyed this story, it would be great if you could mention it on social media and perhaps leave a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. You can find us at airlinepilotguy.com. <laughs>